Let's go ahead and now look at our passage, Romans chapter 5. Tonight we'll take a look at verses 3 through 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5, and the key word for tonight, the key word for tonight is hope. Romans 5, 3 through 5. After explaining to us that all of us have a need for a right standing before God, or justification using Paul's term, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 320, Paul made it clear in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, that justification is obtained by grace through faith apart from works. And then in chapter 4, he illustrated the principle of justification by grace through faith by using the case of Abraham, who was a man that was respected by Jew and Gentile alike. And also, in a secondary way, he uses an illustration of David, who he says was blessed because his sins were not imputed to him. Last week, we began a study of Romans chapter 5 on the expectation or the certainty of justification. We've been studying the need of justification. Now we study the expectation or the, or the certainty of justification. Paul's going to answer questions like, well, how long will this justification last? Great, I have it. I'm glad that I'm justified. But is it something that's temporary? He'll, he'll also ask, does it hold up under all the circumstances of life? If I sin, will I lose justification and face the wrath of God? Paul will assert, though, that even if I do sin, I retain my right standing before him and will not face the wrath of God. The term wrath of God is something for unbelievers. Punishment, yes. Discipline, rather, is a better term. Yes, but not wrath. We've been saved from the wrath of God. Some people want to know, will justification survive this life? Paul actually answers in two ways in this passage. In verses 1 through 5, he answers negatively. Even though I experience tribulation, it is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. In verses 6 through 11, Paul answers the question positively. We were justified when we were sinners, when we were God's enemies. Now, if that's the case, now that we're his family, he will keep us justified. So Paul began in verse 1 of chapter 5 by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith. What Paul's really saying, in light of everything I just got through teaching you in the first four chapters, now we've got some, some really great stuff that, is, that, it, that flows from that. It's not just cold theology. It's not just, it's not just sterile theology. There's a reason why we need to know that we can't lose our salvation. You know that if you happen to believe that you can lose your salvation, we need to talk, seriously, it really, it really affects how you live. Someone asked me one time, is that a real important doctrine? Well, yes, it's very, very important, especially with regard to relationships. If you've got a, one member of a family that believes you can lose your salvation and another one that doesn't, those two people are going to live their lives differently. Theology really matters. And this is one of the places where Paul pulls it all together and tells us why we've been studying this doctrine of justification. Having been justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God. Because of our uh, justification, we have an objective peace with God instead of being at war with God. The Greek word's irene, and it means a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility. You see, before we became saved, before we became justified, the position we were in was not good. Already in Romans, Paul has mentioned these seven things. God has revealed his wrath against us. Now, that's when we're unbelievers. That was Romans 1.18. 
We stored up wrath for us on the day of, or he stored up wrath for us on the day of wrath. And that's Romans 2, 5. God has given us up to self-destruct, Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. We were worthy of the second death in Romans 1, 32. We were inexcusable, Romans 2, 1. Romans 3, 9 said that we were all under sin. In Romans 3.19, we were guilty in the eyes of the divine courtroom. Those seven points already revealed in Romans make it clear that we're the enemies of God before we become saved. Not neutral, not good guys, not just good enough to try to get to heaven. We were God's enemies. And Paul comes right out and says that in verse 10 of this chapter. Prior to the moment of justification, man was hostile toward God. But now after justification, a truce is declared so that peace exists. God and believers are reconciled, meaning we are no longer enemies. Where there had been war, now there is a state of peace. And that, there's a state of peace regardless of how you may feel at any one given moment. There may be times when you wake up and you don't feel at peace with God. But positionally you are. You are no longer his enemy. And there's nothing that you can do that makes you the enemy of God ever again. Now, people say, was well, that a license to sin? Well, of course not, not unless you're foolish. You'll go right out and try it, and he will tan your backside. And that's nothing that we want. This is not a license to sin. It's a license to have hope and comfort in the way that we live. Why do, we, why do believers have to, over the centuries, turn this and twist it around into some sort of perversion? There's a positive side to this, and it's a great side to it. There's a reason, again, why we need to understand that we have been justified by grace through faith, not not basis of works, and that we can't lose it. There are two sides to reconciliation we saw last week. The objective side, the potential which Christ accomplished for all mankind on the cross, and the subjective side by which we actually become reconciled to God. The whole world is reconciled, in the sense of being made savable by Christ, but not in the sense of being saved. It's also real important, we, I think we closed with this last week, it's important to remember that God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. And sometimes that's a, we might think, well, that's just a technical theological point that they just discuss in seminary and Bible college. No, that's real important, because you don't want to insult God in the process. God has done nothing for which we need to be reconciled to him, or he needs to be reconciled to us, rather. We need to be reconciled to him. We're the ones that did wrong, not Christ. It was Christ's substitutionary death which brought about reconciliation. It was through the person and the work of the Savior, supported or appropriated by faith, that access into this state of grace, that is the state of justification, has been accomplished. Now, we get to verse 3. Actually, let me, let, me, let me say one more thing to set this up about verse 2. Look at verse 2. Through whom, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. That's where we finished last time. We, and the word exalt can also be understood as we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in this context, the glory of God refers to the, to the future, to our life in heaven. And this, this passage is telling us, because we've been justified, we, we, can be, we, can, we can experience joy now because of what we know is going to happen then. And boy, didn't last time we ended on a high note. That's, a, that's an extremely 
encouraging thing. We can experience joy now because we know what's going to happen then. And then look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. The word tribulations there, thlipsis, means trouble involving direct suffering or suffering or persecution or problems. So verse 2 says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 3 he says, and not only this, but we also exult in our troubles. Right, here we go again. Now, Paul, it's James, one, all over you, right? You know, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its maturing work, that you might be complete and mature, lacking in nothing. And here Paul's going to say the same thing, essentially, the same thing. Are we really expected to exult or rejoice in our troubles? Now, verse 2, we had no problem with. We've, we love the fact that we've got eternal life. We can't lose it. We're going to rejoice in that. And then right on the tail of that, Paul turns right around and says, oh, by the way, we exult in our troubles, too. It seems a bit inconsistent, Paul, does it not? That you've just told us that we're, we're supposed to be happy because of our salvation, and now all of a sudden we're supposed to be happy when we have trouble. Is that really what Paul is saying? Well, yeah, that's exactly what Paul's saying. And there's nothing inconsistent about the believer enjoying the reconciliation we have with God, the peace we have with God, while at the same time facing illness, persecution, and difficulties of all kinds. I love it when people try to say there's contradictions between Romans and James. There's no contradiction between any of the writers of Scripture because they all had the writer, capital W, capital A, author, and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a slight difference between the James passage and this passage. This passage says not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that, the tribu knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proving character, proving character, hope. There's a bit of a difference because in the James passage, James is commanding us, count it all joy. In this passage, this is an indicative. He's it's, it's just making a statement of fact. We exult in our tribulation. And some of us might want to say, well, Paul, you, you and who else exults in your tribulations, your trials? Paul's, if, if Paul was a salesman, he would be making almost an assumptive close. This is the way it ought to be. He's not exhorting us to do it, but he's kind of backdoor exhorting us. So that's the difference between James and, and Paul. But, but James is exhorting believers to count it all joy. Paul's stating a fact. Believers continue to enjoy peace with God while living in a hostile world. Now, that's big. That's important. We continue to enjoy peace with God now in the middle of a hostile world, in the middle of troubles, because of a hope that we have for the future. Because we've been justified by grace through faith, and because we can't lose that, we can have happiness now. You know, one of the most common questions I'm asked is, well, how do I do that count-it-all-joy thing? And it's not a psychological trick. It's not as though you, you act as if it wasn't painful to you. Some people try that, you know. You know, they'll, they'll have a death of a close family member. And they, they know that they're supposed to count everything joy. They realize they're not doing that. They realize it's just tearing them up. It's eating them up. And so they pretend, almost like a psychological gymnastics, they pretend it doesn't bother them. I don't miss them. It's no big deal. They were mean to me the last year of my life anyway. Haven't you heard that? I mean, it's, it's a very common thing to happen psychologically. You get mad at the person who died. You know, how dare they leave me? 
I mean, I've counseled that more than uh, more than a lot, quite a few times. You know, you get mad at the person. How dare they leave? As if they had anything to do with it. If it, you know, assuming it wasn't a suicide. Well, that's a, psycho, a bit of psychological gymnastics to help you handle the problem. That's not how the Lord wants you to handle it. Not to act as though it doesn't hurt. Pain hurts. To pretend that it doesn't is not the answer to the problem. To cover it up with some alcohol or drugs or something like that. I'm talking about at this point. I'm talking about psychological, emotional pain. That's not the answer to the problem. Paul's going to give you the answer to the problem right here. He's going to tell you in Romans how to apply what we learned in James. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to tell you how you can count it all joy. And it all has to do with our focus in life. We're to continue to enjoy peace with God while living in a hostile world. Tribulation is designed, Paul says, to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. It does not cancel the reconciliation that we have with God. Just because troubles come our way, it doesn't cancel that reconciliation. Troubles don't remove justification, nor are they an indicator that justification has been removed. There are some folks out there in the larger Christian community, and I use the word Christian there, starting to use it advisedly, that would say, if you've got trouble coming your way, then something's wrong with your spiritual life. If you've got enough trouble coming your way, then maybe you weren't saved at all. And that's not Paul's doctrine. That's not his theology. Matter of fact, Paul tells us over and over again, troubles are going to come your way if you're walking with the Lord. Maybe not something you signed up for, but that's what, that's, what, that's what the reality of it. But just because you have troubles coming your way, Paul's letting us know that doesn't remove our justification. And it's not an indicator that, that, that our, our justification has been removed in the past. So why do we exalt in tribulation? You know, a lot of people think you're a little weird if you exalt in the middle of trouble. And again, exalt could be translated if you rejoice in, in times of trouble. Well, Paul's going to tell us that too. Because we know that the, the text actually says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, that's what we call a causal participle. It could be translated, because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. The reason why we can reasonably rejoice in troubles is because we know that tribulation brings endurance, in turn, endurance brings a tested or a proven character, <coughs> and the end result of it would be hope. We have similar lists like this. There's a similar list in James 1, verses 2 through 4. <coughs> Excuse me. And there's also a similar list in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, or at least there's a similar progression of ideas in those chapters. I want you to see the key word here. Ultimately, we can rejoice in tribulation or troubles because we know. Because we know. We know that even though troubles come, we have not lost our justification. We have not lost our peace with God. No matter what the situation brings, we can always know we have a future in heaven. And does that make the pain any less painful now? No, pain still hurts. That's what I think, that's what I think believers have a problem with here. They think... If, if they hurt, they're somehow not spiritual. No, I mean, that's why they call it suffering. 
That's why that's that's what pain is. If it if it wasn't painful, then we wouldn't call it suffering. Yes, it, it may be painful, but you can endure that and even endure it with an inner attitude of peace because of a hope for the future. How do you see why Paul could stand getting beat up, getting shipwrecked, getting snake bit, going to the executioner's field? Because he had a hope for the future. He was living his life now with an eye to the future. Now, that doesn't mean that, that he ignored his life now. If anybody ever didn't ignore his life now, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he lived every day so that it counted because he knew he had a certain number of them because he knew that there would be an eternity in front of him. No, it's actually the opposite. The more you have your eye on eternity, really truly do have your eye on eternity and God and the, and the realization, the reality of it, the more full you'll live each day right now. You won't take a chance on wasting time. Suffering, rather than weakening our hope, strengthens our certainty in that hope. Hope, in this sense, is like a muscle. It gets stronger with use, and it atrophies if we don't use it. I'm told that men after age 35 lose 4% of their muscle mass per year unless they do something to, to consciously make an effort to have that not happen. Now, you won't go to zero because you go 100%, 4%, and then it comes back. I don't want to do the math. I'd, I'd show you my weak point. But you'll never, you won't go down to zero, but you've got to do something. When you're 18 years old, what do you got to do? Well, you just got to walk by the gym and you put muscle on, right? But not after you're 35. I'm talking about men, not women. I don't know the statistics on women. We, but you have to exercise in order to keep that muscle sharp. Well, that's, that's what hope is in a sense. The more spiritual endurance we have, the sharper, the stronger our hope is for the future. You know, sometimes believers get just sloppy and lazy. We've had, we had prosperity for too long. I think the prosperity test is the most difficult test for an individual or a nation or a culture to pass. And the longer we're in that, the sloppier our spiritual lives get, and the less we look to the future and we start looking at what's right here in front of me because we're so entertained, we're so prosperous. But I'll tell you what, sometimes, and I hope it doesn't have to happen, sometimes God takes away a little bit of that prosperity in order to get you to turn your focus away from that back onto Him. Heaven forbid, that, heaven forbid that has to happen to us individually or culturally. I would hope that it doesn't. I'd hope we turn our attention to Him because of exhortation from the Word without having to do it from discipline from Him. So hope is like a muscle. Suffering keeps our focus sharp. The Greek word for hope is the word elpis. It's a little different from the English word for hope. Elpis is a word that means confident expectation. You know, in English we can say, you know, you, you may say, hey, how's uh, how are your kids? You think how you how your kids? You think your kids are going to turn out? And you say, well, I, I certainly hope they do okay. And that the way we would use that term, well, maybe I have no idea if they're going to turn out okay or not. Maybe they will, and maybe they won't. That's one way we can use that English word. You're going to do well on the test? Well, I certainly hope so. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Now, there's another way, even using the same illustration, we could use the word hope. Say you had studied and studied and studied for that particular exam, and your professor comes up and says, hey, you going to do okay on the test today? Well, I hope so. Well, because you know the material, you can, you can, you can have some pretty good confidence about it. Now, that's, a, that's a closer to the way the Greeks use the word hope. They consider hope to be confident expectation. In other words, we know how it's going to turn out. So when we talk about hope for the future, we can know how it's going to turn out. Many of you know, some of you know this um, 
very well knows the story about Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar is a salesman par excellence. He's motivator, and he's, he's done many things. But what you may not know, he's also, or was also, a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Church in Dallas. Had a large Sunday school class for years. And one thing that he liked to do each year, at least each year when the Cowboys were in the Super Bowl, and during a few years it seemed like it was almost every year, every other year that they were, he would invite his Sunday school class over to his home to watch the Super Bowl. Now, because the Super Bowl is planned by pagans, they make sure that it's right in the middle of the Sunday evening service. <laughs> There's a lot of other reasons we can make, it, make that case, too, that they're pagans. But, but they, and so you can't hardly see the Super Bowl if you come to church that in the evening unless you shift the church service time like we do. And like good football fans that we are, oftentimes we will do that. <laughs> Just so we still have our church service. But, but what Zig decided to do was he said, well, listen, I'll tape the game. And then we'll have nobody tell us what the score was. We'll go over to the house, and we'll watch the game afterwards. And we can watch it as if it was happening right then. And we'll get, we can have the same excitement because none of us will know what the outcome of the game was. And they all made a pact. Nobody will tell each other what happened in the score. If you happen to run, down, run into somebody out in the parking lot, well, you know what happened. Somebody tells Zig as, as he's going to his car, hey, wasn't that a great cowboy victory today? Well, you know, it, it spoiled it for him, but nobody else in the room heard it. So he went on to the house anyway, had the football party, and watched the tape of the game with the other folks that were watching with him and saw them as the Cowboys would get penalized. They'd moan. As they'd have a turnover, they would get so upset. You know, when somebody threw a touchdown, it was, it was great. Things are going to go well. The whole time Zig is sitting there watching it, and he's not watching it with as much uh, consternation. He's watching it with enjoyment because he likes the plays and things are going well, and he can appreciate it. But you know why he didn't get real upset when he see that pass interference call or that holding call or that penalty, the penalty that sets him back 15 yards or the fumble or the interception? Because he knew it didn't really matter. The Cowboys were going to win. Last night, I didn't know who was going to win. Neither did you. I stayed up till 2 o'clock trying to find out. I mean, at this point, it really didn't matter to me who you, who you were for one or another. I'm saying nobody knew. So there was a certain amount of tension. And, in fact, several times I went outside in the backyard and, and um, you know, looked up into the sky. I said, Lord, what are you doing here? You know, I, you know, and then I, I would pray my prayers because I was really uptight. Cindy was concerned with me. You know, she said, you need to sit down. You need to take a deep breath. You need to relax a little bit. And, uh, you know, maybe some of you were that way, too. You know, I was pacing the house. You know. And then finally I prayed outside, Lord, I know you already know how this worked out. Not only do you know how this one worked out, you know how the next one worked out. And you know how it's going to affect everybody in this church. Everybody in this country. And then a certain peace came upon me because even though I didn't know, I knew he knew. Well, you can enjoy life in the midst of tribulations because you know how it all turns out. Now, it doesn't mean you live dispassionately. It doesn't mean you can't have enjoyment. Those, those people that were watching that game, they, they had enjoyment during the, as the game was going on. But we know how it all turns out. In case you're wondering, look to the end. It's okay. It won't ruin the book. You know, we win. Jesus wins. At the, at the end of time, at the end of the book of Revelation, the perfect God, man, with a capital M, is in charge, just like man was in charge in the beginning. It all works. Huh? And you know what? If something was to happen and the Lord called you home tonight, assuming you've trusted Jesus Christ, received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which I assume that you have, it, it doesn't really matter what happens to you tonight. In, in the long-term sense of things. Again, please don't understand. I, th- I hope you know me well enough. I'm not minimizing anybody's problems. I'm not saying they're not painful. I know they are. But the way you get through them is to realize they're not permanent. 
They're temporary, no matter how long they last. It's the same thing Peter taught us in First Peter, if you if you recall that. Problems, no matter how intense, are all, all temporary. We will live with Christ forever. And the people that are suffering right now, assuming they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to live with Christ forever too. Because sometimes it's too more difficult to watch somebody else suffer than it is to suffer yourself. You know, I would hate to live life apart from that kind of hope. I can't imagine living life apart from the hope of the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. It would be very, very difficult. You know what? That ought to also motivate us to tell others about Christ so that they have the same hope that we do. Hope doesn't disappoint. There are a lot of things that will disappoint us in life. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So not only do we have an objective basis for our hope, and that was knowledge, we also have a subjective basis for our confident expectation. That subjective basis is the love of God which the Holy Spirit has poured out in our hearts. Now, one, one quick note, because there is some discussion about this passage. This phrase, love of God, in, in Greek we call this a subjective genitive, meaning that this is, should, could, be, could be understood, this is God's love. You see how it can be confusing? The love of God. This should be understood as God's love, <coughs> rather than our love for God. You know, the love of God, sometimes we can think of that in an objective sense, the love we have for God. So there's a subjective sense in that it's God's love, or an objective sense, it's our love for God. And then some people throughout history have felt like it was our love for God. In other words, the passage would be understood that the Holy Spirit poured out in us a desire to love God. And, and some great people have thought that, uh, Luther and Augustine among, were two that did. But by far and away, most of the early church fathers and almost all modern expositors take it as a subjective genitive, meaning God's love for us, mainly because that's what the context is. And that's how we have to interpret the love of God, God's love, I'm sorry, the love that God possesses, God's love, has been poured out. This verb signifies abundant, extravagant effusion. When we talk about God's love being poured out, it's not poured out in a minor way. It's poured out in a real serious way. And it's not poured out just a little bit, you know, like this. Just put a little water in there. That's, that's not how God pours his love out. If the water is God's love, then this is us. This, this is how he pours it out. You see? I mean, it's just overflowed. That's, that's the love of God being poured out. Not, not just a teeny bit. I warned you. Yeah. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit pours that love out, he really pours it out. And, and it's God's love that he's pouring into us. See, God's love has been poured into our hearts in the past. And love, God's love is now in us. And this love is conveyed to our sensations by the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer. Now, I know this may be a new concept for many. The idea, this concept, the idea that the Holy Spirit makes us feel the presence of God's love. But that's one of the things that gives us hope. So you have an objective reason for hoping, and that's knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, or tested character. And tested character brings about hope. Knowing that that progression is a good thing, knowing that we've been justified by grace through faith, that's one aspect to our having hope or confident expectation. But a second aspect to our hope is 
a, a miracle of the Holy Spirit, a ministry of the Holy Spirit where God's love is poured out upon us. Do I need to do it again or did you get the point? I mean, he just effusely pours his love out into us. And it is a subjective thing. You know, the word subjective is not totally bad. It can be. It's like the word emotion. It's not bad in and of itself. You can use emotions improperly. But they can also be wonderful as well. When fully understood, this is a very comforting truth. Douglas Moo said it, said it this way, and we'll wrap it up with this. He said, concerning this idea of the love of God having been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, Douglas Moo said, it is internal, subjective, yes, even emotional, sensation with the, within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love that is expressed and made vital in real concrete actions on our behalf that gives to us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us. That's what he'll tell us later on in the passage when he speaks of the way that God demonstrates his love. So God demonstrates in a real concrete way the Holy Spirit allows us to feel, and that's not a bad word, to feel the love of God within us. Now you may, you may try to act like it doesn't, it doesn't affect you at all, but I guarantee you everyone wants to feel love. And not all of us, not all get to experience that wonderful blessing here on earth. Or some get to experience it to a greater degree than others. I feel real sad when somebody says, I don't believe anybody's ever loved me in my whole life. I've had people tell me that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I know one person that's loved you, even if you think nobody else ever has. God's loved you. And you know what? If they're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, because I think the way that this verse is phrased, this has happened to every believer, because Paul is talking to believers believer here as a past tense event, the love of God which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, then, then deep down, the Holy Spirit will let you know that God loves you. That's one of the most comforting things I can possibly tell you tonight. Even if, even if your mom didn't or your dad didn't, which is the most abnormal thing in the universe, that's why David says at one time, even if my mother and father forsake me, I know you'll never leave me. Even if your mother and father f forsook you, and I know some in this room, that's what happened. I guarantee you God doesn't forsake you. And God loves you. And the Holy Spirit has this incredible ministry to actually make you feel that. So we have an objective means for our hope, what the Scriptures have told us. We have a subjective means for our hope. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us and not only this but also we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance perseverance proven character proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us Heavenly Father we can't say thank you enough Thank you enough for the two aspects that we've studied here.